Hey guys, uh, we're moving on to another chapter in our series through Luke. Uh, another narrative, uh, another topic, and yet sort of the same thing. We're, we're covering this uh, continual question of who is this man Jesus? That That's the whole reason why Luke is, is writing this gospel, and that's what we're going to uh, figure out again this week. So uh, I'm just going to pray, and then we'll dive into Luke chapter 6. Lord God, we uh, thank you for this opportunity to um, hear from your word. I thank you for the opportunity that uh, I have to, to preach through your word. Uh, and even though we can't uh, come together physically, uh, I thank you that you can still be at work, that your spirit can still be working in the hearts of your people. And so I just pray that your spirit would uh, give us understanding as we hear the word, uh, open our eyes to see and understand uh, who this Jesus is, more so that we might respond appropriately uh, in praise of you and trusting in you. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Okay, so over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've seen uh, Jesus' authority to forgive sins, uh, and then he, he backed that up by, by healing the, the paralytic man. Uh, he uh, had authority to touch those who were ceremonially, uh, ceremonially unclean, uh, and instead of himself becoming unclean, he made others clean. Uh, he, he hung out and associated with those who had a bad reputation, tax collectors and sinners, uh, and instead of ruining his own reputation, he transformed them. He didn't come to, to call righteous people, but sinners to repentance. And so the topic in, in this week's passage is, is a little bit different, um, and it's pretty clear right from the first verse what we're going to be talking about. So let, let's just dive straight into it. Uh, this is uh, Luke chapter 6, starting from verse 1. It says, uh, on a Sabbath, there's, there's the topic already, on a Sabbath, uh, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some, of, some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And so this, this question was sort of directed at the disciples, but, but we see when Jesus responds, it was, it was also directed at, at Jesus. Uh, if, if his disciples were doing something wrong and, and he wasn't correcting them, then he was equally accountable for what they were doing. So, so th this is a, a huge accusation, and it actually, for, for us, it has the potential to derail the entire gospel. The, the accusation is that Jesus has sinned against God by breaking the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy by, by not doing any work. And, and the reason why I say that this could derail the entire gospel is, is because we need a sinless saviour. We, we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. God come down in human flesh to live the life that we couldn't live to be our perfect substitute, one who lived the life that we couldn't live and then died the death that we should have died. And when he died on the cross, he, he took the punishment for our sins and, and we respond by trusting in him. And then when we trust in him, he takes on board our sins and we get his righteous life. But if he didn't live a righteous life, if he's broken the fourth commandment here, then the whole gospel is, is ruined. So we kind of we need to get to the bottom of this. Because the Pharisees come along here and say that he's broken the law. So are they right? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll cover it briefly. In, in fact, I'll cover it really briefly. I'll say, no, he didn't break the law. Okay, moving on now. 
No, really though, there is a reason why they thought that he did, and so I think it's worth delving into a little bit to see why they thought that he was breaking God's law. So these Pharisees, they believed in the Old Testament, the Torah, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah is where God revealed his law for his people. But they also believed that these laws needed expanding and interpreting that you needed rabbis and scholars to explain what was meant by these specific commands. See, if you really wanted to know how to obey it properly, then you need to know what it means, and you need to find the right rabbi that will teach you that. But the problem was that they believed these additional teachings were actually just as authoritative as God's word revealed in the Torah. And their motivation wasn't actually all bad, at least initially, uh, when Pharisaism f- first started, basically these first century Jews, or you know a little bit earlier on, uh, the Jews were living under Roman rule. They had these evil dictators, this horrible empire came and overthrew, overthrew their country, and then they were under this oppressive regime. And what's the explanation? Well, well, it must be Israel's disobedience. That's how it worked in the past. Israel disobeyed, another nation would come and, and conquer them. So the solution to this whole Roman Empire problem was just be obedient to God's law, and then God will faithfully respond by kicking out the Romans. So how do we ensure that that no one will stuff it up for us? Well, we just need to add more rules to stop people from breaking God's commands. We just need to add more rules that take it a step further so that no one will be tempted to even get close to breaking those rules. And then we need to add another layer onto those rules so they won't break the rule that would break the rule that would get close to breaking the initial rule. So that's kind of how it all all started. And then they kind of missed the point that, that God's initial laws were written for our benefit. And instead, with all these additional rules, it became a horrible, unbearable burden that the Pharisees demanded of all the other people around them even though, as we learn throughout the Gospels, they didn't actually live up to that themselves. But I went through all the various um, verses in the Old Testament about the Sabbath, and and most of them are pretty straightforward. It says that you'll work six days, and on the seventh day is a day of rest. It's, It's to be lived for the Lord, and that you shall do no work. It's pretty straightforward, but there's not much explanation beyond that. It just says, don't work. You know, you can still... Go to the temple, to the synagogue. You can travel to visit your friends and and be with family. But then the rules were added that you couldn't travel a certain distance. So imagine you're you're living in the first century as a faithful Jew. You work, um, you know, really hard, long hours, six days a week, and then the Saturday comes and it's a day of rest to the Lord. And you go to walk to your friend's place. So later on that day, you can travel to the synagogue together. And just as about you're about to reach your friend's place, a band of Pharisees run at you, wielding tape measures out, you know, measuring how far you've gone from your house to your friend's house, uh, ready to condemn you and say that you've broken the fourth commandment and that you've sinned against God. They've kind of missed the point of the Sabbath. And they're not really following what was laid out in the Old Testament. So they were probably wrong in their interpretation of of the laws in Exodus and and Leviticus. 
So this is how we'd expect Jesus to respond, right? We're, we're going to have Jesus sit down with them and say, all right, everyone, open up your Torahs. And I'm assuming they would go like that. It would be a scroll rather than a book. Uh, and say, everyone turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at the fourth commandment and we're going to discuss you know, which rabbi has the best interpretation. And then he could have argued with them about what was biblically permissible and what wasn't. Which rabbi was the most authoritative, you know, which ones we should reject. But we don't actually see that. So let's, let's check out Jesus' response to, to the Pharisees. Uh, so this is down in verse 3. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That doesn't really answer their point at all. And yet it sort of does as well. So, so you need to watch carefully at his, at his reasoning. And this is actually something that we're going to see time and time again as we go through this gospel. Actually, even later on in this passage, we're going to see a, a very similar tactic. Is that the Pharisees or some other opponents of Jesus will ask a question and Jesus will respond by asking another question. And at first glance, it'll look like he's avoiding the question or changing the topic, uh, but he's actually shifting focus to get to the heart of the issue. He, he reveals what his opposition is actually thinking. He, he knows their thoughts, he knows their arguments, he knows their reasoning, and, and he cuts through all of that by, by uh, getting to the heart of the issue by, by asking questions. So instead of getting bogged down on legal disputes and, and interpretations, uh, you know, interpretations of the law. Uh, he, he just says something that immediately ends the whole conversation. It, it silences his opponents. And, and that's, that's what he's doing here. Uh, but we kind of need to, yeah, work through this and figure this out. Because what has David got to do with Jesus and his disciples picking grain on the Sabbath? And, and what does it mean that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? Well, firstly, he's picked a pretty strange and unique example from, from 1 Samuel. Uh, it's the story of, of David. This is before he became king. Uh, he was fleeing from Saul. And, and he and his men were, were hungry. And they were fed uh, consecrated bread from the tabernacle that was meant uh, for the priests, not for David. So they ignored the letter of the law because they were hungry, because they were in need. And, and the interesting thing about this example is that there are actually uh, plenty of rabbis from around the first century that wrote about this. And so it was common among rabbis and Pharisees that this, was, this action was actually justified, that David wasn't sinning against God. It was perfectly reasonable in those circumstances for David to go and, and eat the bread that was technically and legally meant for the priests. And that's because of the unique circumstances. Obviously, they were hungry. But, but beyond that, David was actually there and in the process of establishing a new reign and rule in Israel. He was about to become the new king. So this huge event superseded the strict uh, dietary requirements and the rules surrounding the Sabbath. There was something bigger going on here. And so now Jesus is using this example to say, that someone even greater than David is here. There is a new rule, a new king. The true king of Israel has arrived. 
And this is more important than all their strict dietary requirements and their additional rules that they've added to the Sabbath. So the problem for the Pharisees here wasn't their interpretation of what was allowed and what wasn't allowed on the Sabbath. That, that, that's a secondary issue. The big point is that they had no idea who they were talking to. They, they'd missed the point completely that the new king of Israel had arrived. They didn't get it because they didn't get who Jesus was and is. So see, the, the, the creator of the universe was standing in front of them in a field. So, so the God who created the world and everything in six days and then rested on the seventh and invented the Sabbath is now standing in front of them and they're lecturing him about how he doesn't understand the Sabbath. And, and, and the God who appeared to the people of Israel and appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai to deliver his law, he wrote it down with his own hand on stone tablets, the fourth commandment that you shall keep the Sabbath day holy, and now that very same God from Mount Sinai is standing with the Pharisees and they're saying, yeah, we know more about the law and we think you've broken that law. They just had no idea what was going on, no idea who they were talking to. They were talking to the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who invented the Sabbath, the one who created everything and designed the world in a way in which we would have a seven-day week that we would naturally require rest on the seventh day. That's who they were talking to, and they just didn't get that they were talking to the Lord of the Sabbath. And so he says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he's using a specific messianic title. He's basically really bluntly claiming to be the Messiah. And so as such, he is God in the flesh. He is that Lord over everything, Lord over all creation, including the Sabbath. And, and, and that doesn't mean that he is free to break God's law because he wouldn't do that. That would be out of his own character. God's law flows out of his very nature. It's in his nature to, to be consistent with his own nature. So he's not exempt from the law and, and he's not choosing to break the law. It, it, rather, he is the ultimate authority and interpreter of what the law is. He gets to decide what is and isn't permissible on the Sabbath, not the Pharisees, not their rabbis, not their traditions, not their interpretations, but Jesus is the authority over the Sabbath. So notice how a, res a response like that from Jesus uh, is, is likely to be way more infuriating for the Pharisees than just simply getting bogged down into which rabbi has the better interpretation. Get, um, get, you know, he, he just immediately bypasses all those silly arguments uh, and th they can't respond. When he just says, well, actually, I'm the Messiah, I'm the ultimate authority, I get to decide what is and isn't permissible on the Sabbath. He's Lord over everything. You, you can't really respond to that. But this should increase our view of Jesus. We, all of us, we, we all have a low view of Jesus compared to who he truly is. Yes, he, he's fully human, he lived just like us. But, but try and wrap your head around that and you know, get, get a picture of what's going on in the Gospels here. That the creator of all things, creating everything in the world in just six days and resting on the seventh. Now he's one of us living as a human being and being our perfect example of what it means to rest on the Sabbath. Living in perfect obedience to the Sabbath requirements. 
revealing that it's not a, a horrible burden to add more and more rules, uh, but instead it's actually for our own own good. And that, that's in other uh, passages where, where he says that the uh, man is not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. So this Jesus is Lord over everything, including the Sabbath. And, and I know it's a bit... Uh, nitpicky, but there's there's a common expression among among Christians to say that that uh, you should make Jesus Lord of your life. Like no, you you can't make him Lord. He he is Lord, whether you acknowledge it or not. He is Lord. He already is. You can't make him Lord of your life. You need to submit to his lordship and recognize that he already is Lord. He gets to set the rules. He gets to interpret them. He gets to reveal his will. We don't get to tell him what to do, what his will is, what his law says. And that's not remotely unfair at all because he's God and we are not. That's the God that we serve. And it doesn't mean that he's a mean and an awful tyrant. We see that in the account of Jesus here that... Uh, he's more concerned about the well-being of his disciples, that they're hungry, so we'll make sure that they're fed. And, and later on, we'll see a man healed on the Sabbath. Because again, the, the point of his law isn't to be an unbearable burden to his people. It's because God actually cares for us and knows what's best for us. And that's why he, he, he gives us his law to guide us. It's just the complete opposite to the, to the way the Pharisees approached it, of adding extra rules to be an unbearable burden. Okay, so let's uh, move on to the next section in, in Luke 6. Um, as I said earlier, the, the Pharisees weren't exactly too happy about Jesus' actions uh, on the Sabbath. Uh, and so in this section, Luke is combining uh, this narrative with the, the earlier account in, in the field. Uh, some scholars think that this uh, second story might have happened the very next week. Um, it may have. We, we don't know. Uh, but actually, a lot of the Gospels aren't written chronologically. Uh, we think of it in terms of how we would write a biography uh, in the 21st century Western culture. This is how we want a biography to be. But uh, they weren't just writing to provide a detailed, orderly account of his life. They were, they were wanting to teach us specific things about Jesus. And, and so Luke takes these two stories and, and puts them together because there's the same message behind it. And it's uh, Jesus' authority on the Sabbath. So let's uh, continue on. So this is Luke 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was, te uh, and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. So here we see this is a, a, a bit of a setup, possibly by both the Pharisees and by Jesus. They, they were intentionally following Jesus around, going where he went, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath. They saw there was a man that needed healing there. They were, they were ready to pounce. They were watching to see what he would do. And at the same time, Jesus also knew exactly what was going on and was setting them up by intentionally inviting the man up so that he could heal them, so that he could reveal his authority. So once again, there's a similar theme to the last section, and, and the exact same problem 
um, that the Pharisee, Pharisees had, it, it all boils down to what is and what isn't allowed on the Sabbath, including healing. Now, whether or not they actually believed that healing on the Sabbath was, was morally wrong, I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I think whatever Jesus did, they were going to try and find fault with it. Um, nonetheless, it's probably worth taking a bit of a tangent here and, and discussing what is permissible on the Sabbath, particularly for, for us as, as Christians. Uh, because even within the church, there's a huge variety of differing opinions and interpretations on the Sabbath or, or what we would now call the Lord's Day or Sunday. So for, for plenty of Christians, uh, the Sabbath is treated just as an Old Testament law, along with the, the sacrificial system, um, you know, Levitical sacrifices, things like that. It's something that you don't really need to worry about too much anymore. That was just an Old Testament thing. Now we don't need to worry about it. And then for other Christians, uh, they believe that a Sunday should look exactly the same as what a Saturday did for the Old Testament Jews. That it's just continued on. The only difference is that it's been changed to a Sunday to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And, and, and the reason why they would hold to this position is because the Sabbath wasn't actually introduced as a part of just the Old Covenant. It, it was actually... Uh, it already existed as an intrinsic part of the creation. It was established when God created the earth in six days, and then on the seventh day he rested. He, he designed the working week, and, and he de designed us to require a day of rest. And of course, like most things within the church, there's always extremes. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you've got the really strict Sabbatarians. This is uh, if you if you wanted to go out into the the outer Hebrides, it's the outer islands of Scotland of um, seeing, you know, holiday houses up for rent there where you're only allowed to uh, rent that place or use that holiday house on the condition that you don't do any dishes or don't hang out any washing on the Sunday, which I'm possibly hearing a few amens uh, through YouTube there. But, you know, so, so even to get out to these islands, um, just until a few years ago, you couldn't get out there on a Sunday. There were no flights, there were no ferries, it was all closed. And then when you'd get there, uh, every recreational centre, every shop, every uh, the swimming pool in, in Stornoway, it was all closed on a Sunday, even to the extent that the local council would uh, padlock shut swing sets on, on playgrounds on the Sunday so that uh, kids wouldn't profane the Lord's Day. And then you've got the other extreme, the other end of the spectrum, where people see that every day is a work day. There's, there's no need to rest no weekly routine, just work, work, work every day until the day that you die. And it's not healthy. We, we weren't designed for that. We weren't designed to work nonstop every day. We do require rest. And, and of course, for us as, as Christians, uh, we're commanded to not forsake assembling of ourselves together. We are meant to meet together, obviously, except in our present circumstances. But our desire is to come back together and meet together every single week. So I think both, both of these uh, fire extremes are, are, are not only unhelpful, I, I think they're, they're wrong, uh, but there's plenty of us, most of us, who would fall somewhere in between those two extremes, but along a, a, a spectrum. There'd be a variety of different beliefs, even probably within our own church, of what we should or shouldn't do on a, on a Sunday. So where's the line? What can we and what can't we do on a Sunday? So am I, am I finally going to sort out this issue once and for all? and tell you exactly what to do and what you can and what you can't do. 
Well, no, I, I think this uh, falls under the category of, of leaving it up to each other's conscience. Uh, I think this um, is kind of what Paul was getting at in, in Romans 14. Uh, he says, uh, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. So when we get caught up in these debates, uh, judging other Christians over where they draw the line, we actually miss the point because it actually detracts from what the Sabbath is really all about, which the Sabbath points to Jesus. That's the whole point of the Sabbath. And it says that in, in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All of the Old Testament uh, feasts and festivals and, and uh, Sabbaths, which were uh, a wide variety of festivals, but that included the weekly Sabbath, uh, all of these pointed towards a greater fulfillment, which is Jesus. So then the question arises, uh, how does taking a day off a week point to Jesus? Uh, well, I think, um, I, I won't go through the, the whole chapters, but uh, definitely check out Hebrews chapter 3 and, and 4. Uh, it talks about entering God's rest. That the, the people of Israel struggled in the wilderness for 40 years, um, and then finally, after all these years, were, were able to enter God's rest by entering the promised land. Uh, and then they struggled and toiled and worked for six days, but then were able to finally enter into rest each Sabbath. They could rest in the Lord. Uh, but this points towards us and our struggle and our striving, trying to reach God but getting nowhere until finally we have access through Jesus and we can rest in him. So all of the Sabbath is all about Jesus. But instead, our natural tendency is to get so caught up in, in the fine details of the law that we actually miss the point. It's all about getting back and focusing on Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. So let's get back to our text, and we see the Pharisees doing the exact same thing that we do. They're at the end of the spectrum that says that if you are to faithfully avoid work on the Sabbath, you, you won't even heal someone if you're truly committed to observing the Sabbath, and they're ready to pounce as soon as Jesus slips up. But, but remember in the last section how I said Jesus has this tendency to ask a question um, that reveals the heart of the issue, that, that kind of looks like it's changing the topic, but he's, he's immediately getting to the heart of the issue. So look down in, in verse 9. Uh, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So, so look at the, their response. right? He, he asked the question, Is it lawful to do good? Or to do harm. And actually, I think the word here should actually be translated evil. He's suggesting that the Pharisees' requirements for the Sabbath 
it's, it's not just factually incorrect. It's not just a bad interpretation. He's saying it, it's evil. See, not only is it morally right to help someone in need, but then to be able to help someone but refuse is, is evil. See, notice he's, he's not comparing doing good to doing nothing. He's comparing doing good to doing evil by doing nothing. So what was, what was their response? Look back in, in verse 9, he asked the question. In verse 10, he's looking around at them all, and then he continues talking. They, they've got nothing. They didn't have anything to say. They can't answer his question. He, he's revealed their sinful hearts. And not, not just to themselves, but in front of all the other people. See, I mean, what are the Pharisees actually going to say? You know, should, should I do harm or should I do good? You know, it, it's a pretty obvious answer, right? And if the Pharisees respond, no, that there's no way you should do good. Instead, you should do evil and harm him by just leaving him alone and leaving, him, leaving the man to be crippled. It's not really going to get the people, the crowd, on their side, and Jesus has revealed that they've actually missed the entire point of the law. They were so focused on their rule-keeping that they were actually willing to harm others, which was never the point of God's law in the first place. So, I mean, I wonder if we actually do the same thing, become so focused on our own little rules or even on God's law that we, we actually miss the point of God's law. You know, I've seen churches where people have become so focused on on fellowship and and meeting together which is a good thing it's something that we shouldn't forsake but people who uh, go to you know out on a, a church meeting on monday night and then a prayer meeting tuesday night small group wednesday band practice thursday youth group friday and they've never met their next door neighbor that they've got people around them in need but they don't have time for them because they go to church and that means they just can't have any time for people around them in their community that are in need Something's gone wrong there. They've missed the point of the law. They've missed the point of, of what it truly means to live for Christ. Even as, as a fellowship, as a community, as a church community, something's gone wrong when they neglect those who are in need around them. I wonder if we do the same thing, uh, judging other Christians for their views on the Sabbath, what they do and don't do on a Sunday. We're pretty good at taking issues that are up to a person's conscience and and treating our opinion as if it's just as authoritative as God's law, as if we're the authoritative interpreter of God's law. We judge other Christians on conscience issues like what we watch, what we listen to, what we say, whether they do or don't drink alcohol. We treat our, our own opinion as if it is authoritative when instead Jesus is the ultimate authority, the Lord over the Sabbath, the Lord over the law, the Lord over what is right and what is wrong, our, our interpretations of what is right and wrong. And I think maybe we do the same thing as the Pharisees when we miss the point of God's law, when we become so concerned about justice, about standing up for what's right. And it seems like a pretty good and noble thing, standing up for God's law, standing up for what's right, But I know that it, it's so easy to go out of our way to correct people, to, to desperately tell people that what they're doing is wrong. And, and that's not always a bad thing. Sometimes that's necessary. 
But, but what's our motivation behind it? Are we doing it because we truly care about justice? We, we, we genuinely, faithfully want to defend God's law? Or is it just because we're frustrated with others? Because we don't like other people? You know, when we go out of our way to correct people, are we doing it because we care for them? Because we love them? Because we want them to turn from their sins because we can see that it's destructive? Because we really want them to come to Christ and to know his love? Or is it because it makes us feel better when we correct others, when we judge others? We feel morally or intellectually superior because we're the ones that know the truth. So we might be technically right, and yet we've missed the point entirely. Again, this, this isn't to say that we can't correct anyone ever, but do we miss the point of the law? Do we get bogged down in the technical details like the Pharisees and forget to love others, neglect those who are in need, have impure motives even when we do what we think is right or what technically is right? We need to check our heart, examine our heart, and see why are we doing this. So in this whole scenario, I think uh, we, we identify most with probably the Pharisees. You know, we, we always see the Pharisees, they're, they're the ultimate bad guys. <coughs> And yet that's, that's us. We are the bad guys in this scenario. But that's why we need saving. That's why the, the, the whole point of this passage is the only one who can fulfill the law perfectly and save us is Jesus. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the perfect fulfillment of the Sabbath. He's the perfect fulfillment of the law. And, and we know that he is who he says he is because he always backs up his claims. Just like when he made the, the outrageous claim that he can forgive sins, he immediately backed it up by healing the paralytic man. And now in this passage, he's making the claim that he can perfectly fulfill the law and that he is the ultimate authority over the Sabbath, the ultimate interpreter of the law. And he proves that he proves that he is who he says he is by healing the man with a crippled hand. So you can't argue with that. You, you've got no comeback. Which is why the Pharisees didn't respond. They didn't offer an argument in return. They didn't say, well, well, but my rabbi told me this. They just went away mad and plotted against him because that's all they had. The only correct response to Jesus here in when we see his authority, when we see that he's Lord over, over the Sabbath and over everything and over me and over you, he just simply is Lord and our response is to submit to him, to, to bow the knee to recognize that he is Lord over everything. He is already Lord over your life. But now he calls you to turn to him, to surrender to him, and, and he will forgive you. Like I said, we are just like the Pharisees, but we have a chance uh, to go in a different path, not to be better, but to be transformed, not to be deserving of salvation, but to be forgiven. And that's because he fulfilled the law perfectly, because he knew that we couldn't. He lived that life you couldn't live, but then he died for you on the cross. Whether that's breaking God's law, whether that's trying to fulfill it, but having impure motives when doing it. Whatever it is, we've all broken God's law, except Jesus, living that perfect life on our behalf dying for our sins, and then rising from the dead to give us eternal life. So all he calls you to do 
is trust in him. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sovereign rule and reign. There is no uh, doubt of your authority. No one else can compare to you. You are the creator of all things. You are Lord over all of your creation. Lord, we thank you that you are a great and merciful God. That even though we have failed, we have sinned against you. That we have just lived lives that are not anything close to the, the perfect life that you lived. But I thank you that you are so kind and merciful to us that you lived that life in our place and were willing to then die in our place. Uh, Lord, if there's people listening to this that don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would call them to yourself, that you would grant them repentance and faith, or that they would come to know your goodness and know your love and know your salvation. And Lord, help us to live in light of these great truths, to recognize your lordship, and just to live in response to that, to live for you. Lord, in honour of you and all for your glory. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen.